Welcome to GovIT, a monthly podcast series from DLT, where we discuss the next generation of public sector IT solutions with the technology innovators driving the change. I'm your host, Tom Temin. Each month, we explore a different technology, what it is, and how it can help public sector organizations achieve their modernization goals and accomplish their missions. In this episode, we are sitting down with Chris Roberts, the Federal Technology Director at Quest Software Public Sector, to revisit the White House Executive Order on Improving the Nation's Cyber security. And Chris, good to have you with us today. Always good to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me. And we are at or around or roughly the year anniversary of the issuance of the Biden administration's executive order on cybersecurity. Changed the scene quite a bit for federal agencies and for vendors, for that matter. Just review what it is, what it requires, and you know, we'll get into where agencies are. Sure. I mean, like every executive order, it's intended to focus our attention and gaze on a specific issue. Every administration issues these. Um, Typically, they follow the real life um, issues and reality of what's happening in the government space. The cyber orders were specific because we had experienced, quite frankly, a series or bevy of attacks on both supply chain, on infrastructure, you know, that just really impacted the nation. Everything from Colonial Pipeline to Kaseya to SolarWinds. So, When this order came out, it was one designed to reduce the barriers to sharing information between agencies. Ironically, I mean, when we created DHS after 9-11, the goal was to remove, once again, barriers to agencies sharing information. So this goes even further to remove barriers to share cyber-related data, for instance. So if there's an attack at one agency, they can share what they learned and what the actual forensics of that attack was. The other thing was to increase the number of or reduce the number of standards for cybersecurity within the government. We have so many different rules and regs across different agencies. It was to streamline and modernize those standards across those agencies. And the other the important part of the EO, which we can all get behind, is cleaning up the software supply chain. Um, it's funny how many people think that software is just written by a couple of coders, for instance, and they put out a company puts out a product or the government uses one contractor. No, there's so many different components within a software development lifecycle or what we call the supply chain that some could be open source, some is for profit, some could be even international. Coders come from all shapes and sizes across the globe. So that software supply chain is very important to actually get secure. Um, And the last few things it did really was around setting up a review board, kind of like we have with NTSB after a plane crashes, they sort of like get together and figure out what happened, what can we do? And the last thing it really did was improve the way we respond to cyber incidents. So in the past, everyone had their own agenda and own playbook. The thing was to centralize that playbook now. So everyone will sort of like work from the same sort of guide so we can actually have sort of order after we do investigation, people can share the data and figure out exactly what the best way to remediate moving forward would be. And that's what the EO was designed to do. Yes, well, it certainly changed the conversation, and it probably changed a lot of approaches that agencies have been taking. From your standpoint, what have you seen as, let's talk about some of the implementation successes. What's gone well for agencies? So the first thing that's gone well is that we realize is that um, the key tenant of a lot of this cyber hygiene was around zero trust. And it's that's nothing new. It's been around. We've talked about it. We've talked about least privilege. We've had different models before. Um, NIST has put out guidelines. CISA has guidelines. Heck, NSA has network security standards as well. So it really now is 
the, the success is being able to choose and pick what types of solutions are going to address zero trust across your agency. So every every vendor, including us, Quest and others, for instance, have been really working with our agency partners to figure out exactly, well, how do you implement zero trust? How do you get further up that maturity model, for instance, for zero trust? Now, I'd love to say that we're all done. No, we're not going to be all done. I, mean, I think um, it was GDIT did a survey and half of federal agencies at this point think they will actually be ready for zero trust, for instance, by 2024. That's not a long way off. That's actually fairly good, but we thought we'd be further along by then. But just because we're not at full zero trust maturity doesn't mean we don't have security. What it really means is that now on the on the beginning side of that scale, for instance, where things like multi-factor or two-factor authentication, um, encryption or end-to-end -end encryption, we're getting those basic things done, for instance. So I think we're getting along that path. We're getting much further to the completion deadline, for instance. But I believe, you know, as I said, I take them at their word that 50% of them will be there by 2024, which is half of them, which is a lot. Yes. And what about the challenges that you've seen? What are some of the struggles agencies are having? So the, the, the first struggle is human behavior. Um, zero trust or any security change, whether it's something as simple as logging activities or incidents, whether it's locking down a desktop, whether it's putting, say, a, a, a an application container on a mobile device, for instance, to encrypt certain information on, a, on, a, on an agency-provided phone, for instance, it incurs a change in behavior on the part of the user. And that's where a lot of the barriers a lot of times is just that I may not want to deal with the extra layer of security. It may force me to go through a different type of portal. It may force me to change hardware, change providers. So the behavior piece of it is a big, we underestimate it, but it's something that impacts the ability for us to deploy something rapidly. Can you deploy software or solution quickly? Sure you can. Can I get you or every end user in an organization to adopt it today and keep using it and live with it in the near term? That's the heart of things. So the behavior piece with it. The other thing was integration. A lot of integration happens from the standpoint that we have a lot of technical debt in these agencies. And to get to a modern secure footprint across the entire enterprise means that a lot of things have to be upgraded. A lot of things have to be modernized, for instance, and a lot of things have to be remediated. And if I have technical debt, whether it's applications, infrastructure, systems, hardware, for instance, I've got to go through inventory and catalog and figure exactly what needs to be changed by when, and that has a waterfall effect on the entire supply chain, so to speak, within the information systems. Wow. Yeah. So the technical debt is really a key issue because you need to have somewhat of a updated and modernized, not just infrastructure, but software infrastructure to be Absolutely. able to do these two-factor authentication, which gets back to the user annoyance or user ease question that can be implemented in a way that helps or can be difficult. Uh, but yeah, the technical debt then sometimes sounds like I got to invest here too, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, and, and the thing is, you know, the, e the executive order gives agencies a lot of cover and that is they can now go at the cabinet level and say, look, I need this funding because they did the executive order. Um, and that's really impactful because vendors like us, when we come in, we're bringing solutions to the table. We're bringing people, processing you know, and technologies. And it, it takes budget, for instance, to execute on those things. So the air cover of an executive order, the air cover of all the guidance from CISA and NSA are very important, quite frankly, because without money, the wheels don't turn, for instance, and we don't get more secure within the government. And let's talk Talk about some of that additional guidance, because there has been quite a volume of it issuing from the White House and some of the yeah. agencies empowered by the White House to carry out and implement and help agencies implement the executive order. 
such as yeah. CISA, of course, and the National Security Agency, I think NIST mm-hmm. also, yes. are those helping to fill in the sketch of the architecture that the administration envisions? Absolutely. So it may sound like we have multiple agencies issuing guidance, but in fact, they're all working, quite frankly, off the same premise and playbook. So both CISA NSA um, and CISA being part of DHS, for instance, and NIST, all sort of like play within the same sandbox. When you think of the real important guidelines that both CISA and and NSA have put out, is that you think of one, how do we actually track all all these changes? How do we measure progress, for instance? So when I'm working with with an agency, for instance, I say, oh, look, hey, this solution from Quest is going to do X, Y, and Z, for instance. It's going to give you multi-factor. It's going to give you login, whatever it may be. How does that tie back to what they're doing? So one of the things that system recommends that you do is when you measure impact to critical software. Um, critical software is anything that could change the operational posture of an agency. So think everything from your active directory environments to your messaging platforms to your cloud providers. Critical software is the thing that basically the lifeblood of an agency. So the first thing they did was come up with what they call the um, FISMA CIO metrics. So that at a glance, every CIO in every agency can compare apples to apples. Here's where I am with deploying software. Here I am with remediation. Here I am with logging. And the other thing they did was one is what type of multi-factor authentication encryption are you using? And then there are certain levels of benchmarks you use to measure how to deploy that. The other thing below that is logging. Logging is a mundane thing that happens within network environments. So I mean, our standard logging platform is something called SyslogNG, for instance, and you have Splunk and you have other vendors that provide logging. Every application has logging, every device has logging. So the question now is, how do you collect, aggregate, for instance, and feed it up to a dashboard so a CIO or CISO can understand exactly one, has there been a breach? Can I trace it? Can I provide the right forensics to that oversight board, for instance, if there was something that had to be done post-incident? And the other thing is, is, is how do we now do vulnerability disclosure? This is the piece or the one guideline that everyone kind of like debated for a while. It's like, if I'm attacked, if I suffer a breach, who do I tell and where do I actually report it? So vulnerability disclosure is a good practice, not just for the federal government, but also for commercial. There's so many incidents that happen in the commercial space that we never really hear about, but they impact us. And once in a while, you know, Tom, you may get one of those letters from some providers like, hey, we had a breach and we're going to give you a year of free credit monitoring. Well, vulnerability disclosure gives a little bit more who, what, where, when information to federal agencies, to CISA, so we can collect this data, for instance, and provide a better posture for the entire country, especially not just federal, but also commercial institutions as well. So those are a lot of the guidelines that everyone's having to play by right now. And bottom line, do you think the government and its systems are more secure relative to a year ago? I do. As both a citizen, as a you know, solution provider, for instance, you know, when you walk the halls and you watch them using their devices, you watch the remediation that goes on, you watch how admins are treating the networks, for instance, it's it's a little bit more, shall we say, intense in a lot of agencies. In the old world, business as usual, you know, hey, are passwords being changed as often as they used to? Not really. That's not really the thing to measure. We used to measure really how strong are our passwords, for instance. So I'm seeing more multi-factor, for instance. I'm seeing better network segmentation, for instance. And network segmentation just simply means that just because we're sitting next to each other doesn't mean we're sitting on the same subnet, for instance. Doesn't mean we're using the same servers or APIs. Um, so they've gotten much better about controlling exactly the nodes, the users, the APIs, and all the data. They've figured out exactly how to monitor and log and, and control the access to all those different devices and, and objects within the environments. All right. So 
progress made. Still some work to do, but it sounds like a pretty good picture. Yes, it does. Chris Roberts is the Federal Technology Director at Quest Software. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Tom. And hopefully um, a year from now, we'll have even better news and maybe we'll all be more secure. All right. For more information on cybersecurity and how Quest can simplify IT management for your organization, visit them at questpublicsector.com. You've been listening to GovIT from DLT. We'll be back soon with more public sector IT content. I'm Tom Tammen.